0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. You have a child who's struggling or you have a husband who's struggling, wife who's struggling. Just drop a text or, you know, something. I hope things are okay thinking about you. When there's silence, it feels, you know, and we've talked about this. I've thought about this recently. You end up feeling more alone, like you have a special problem. It's not a special problem. It's one out of three families in this country have this special problem.
1: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Loeblasingame, and I am your host. Today, we have a very special guest. My mother, Hillary Clayson Loeb, joined me, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background about her. My mom is the oldest of three daughters. She grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and attended Brown University. My mom lived in Rome her junior year. She graduated and worked as an advertising copywriter for Young and Rubicam, New York. She married my dad in 1983. They moved to Milan where they lived for four years and I was born the second year that they lived there. Uh, Marina, my sister, was born in 1999 when my parents moved back to the US to Cambridge. In 93, my dad and I and our family welcomed victoria daughter number three and we moved to san francisco bay area my mom pursued an interest in long distance running competing in several 10k half marathons and three marathons and in the 1990s she shifted to running track and field and joined the masters track and field team running the 100 and the 200 meter events My mom is also a child advocate, a CASA, a court-appointed special advocate, and has been working for and with the foundation for over 20 years with the majority of her family on the East Coast, second home in Idaho. She travels a lot, which is both fun and exhausting. She says, today, two of my three daughters are married. She is the proud grandmother of twin four-year-old boys. She is an amazing grandmother. We call her Nina. And I'm so excited to have this conversation published my mom tends to be a much more private person than the rest of us in our family. And I definitely didn't see this conversation happening. So I'm very excited. The highlights of the conversation, important things, talking about what it's like to have a child who's struggling with addiction and have the rest of the world shy away from the topic. What does someone need when they're struggling with someone in their family, Do they how to support them, how to reach out to them. She talks about how she sees families today who have sick children and all the support that they receive and that she participates in giving to families with sick children and things that happen. And it reminds her that that was not the way that people Not everybody, but people responded when she had a sick child and changing the narrative around how to treat parents, how to offer support, how to talk about addiction, and really what it's like to be the parent and go through the different stages of adolescent treatment, adult treatment, and then later on recovery. So we get into some really interesting topics about how the world sees this and what it's like as a mom and as a mom of three kids, one of which was deeply struggling and how she made it through that. So I think there's some invaluable information here for parents and people who have loved ones struggling. And I hope that our experience can help you and your family. So without further ado, I give you my mother, Hillary Clayson Loeb, episode 130. Let's do this. Mom, thank you so much for being here. This is very exciting. We've had dad, we've had Dak, we've had Marina and Tori, and now we are completing the circle with you. And I definitely didn't think I was going to be able to get you on the podcast those of you who don't know my mom, this is not a topic that she comfortably likes to talk about. So it's a big deal and a real, honestly, privilege and honor that we're able to get this because I know that it's not easy and comfortable the way it is for the rest of us. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate the willingness to be Mildly just, you know, uncomfortable during this. And I will try, I'll go easy on you. Okay. Let's do a little bit of background about you first.
0: Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in Rhode Island in Providence. And I would say I'm the oldest of three girls and have a big extended family in Western Massachusetts, a happy childhood. I was into sports and you know, I would say a normal, happy childhood. You, uh, you can very much in New England, New Englander. Yes. New England based. Everybody at that point was based in New England. And I think, you know, basically the family that was, you know, the farthest distance was Maine. <laughs> I think it was uh, really, it was not much of a reach, but that was our perspective. Yep. And did growing up, what was
1: your idea of alcoholism addiction like what did that mean when you were growing up
0: was that ever talked about did you know anyone Growing up as i said we've a big extended family alcohol was definitely part of the gatherings we have a still have a big farm in western massachusetts where the family likes to gather there were a number of family members who had problems with alcohol i never heard about it in much detail obviously As a young child, there was zero awareness. It was simply we went up there, we had a good time. But as a teenager and then an older person, I could see that there were a few family members who definitely had more of a problem, and it wasn't entirely social. But it really wasn't something that people talked about because I think there wasn't the thought that you were really going to do anything about it unless it was a serious, serious problem. And we did have some family members for whom it was life threatening, but very few.
1: But it wasn't looked at like something that they had, you know, a disease or something that they truly didn't have power over, right? It was kind of like, get it together.
0: Yeah, I would say, although within my branch of the family, it wasn't a problem. It was, there were, you know, I don't know what discussions were going on in the extended family beyond my branch of the family. I have no idea. So there may have been more candid discussions about what was going on, but it definitely wasn't treated like it is today, there definitely weren't these services. And no, it definitely wasn't talked about. Again, when I say it wasn't talked about, it wasn't talked about with me, but it may have been a big topic of conversation in other households. I don't know, but you know, not the entire focus of gathering up there was drinking. And so I suspect it was hard for people who were struggling. And I'm sad about that because for me, it's part of experience of being up there, but it doesn't define it. So it always saddened me to think that it's difficult for people to come up there for that reason, since I don't have that experience. Yeah.
1: And there, you know, you're talking about our families has a property in Western Massachusetts that has a very old farm building. We call it the farm where six generations of family members gather at various times in the year. So I think what is important to talk about here. A couple things. One is the culture of how we talk about addiction and we'll kind of, we'll cover this as we kind of move through our story and what happened. But the thing I want to get across to people through our conversation is in part the necessary change in how you viewed this problem that fell in your lap, right? So we're discussing kind of what it was like to grow up where you saw this but you in particular are a very very strange human being who can have a cigarette socially i mean i've never in my life met anyone who can socially smoke and then not pick it up right and so you have this you are almost anti addiction right and you you're able to do things that even people who are tendencies cannot do and i think for you there had to be a big shift in Culture in how we talked about this, in learning about what was going on with me, how to deal with it, that kind of thing. And you made that shift far before your family, your extended family, and the people around you may have made that shift, and how that was difficult with support and what parents need when their kid is going through something so intense and scary for a parent. And I think you straddle all the different cultures and coasts and ways that we talk about that. So what I've talked about on here is how I had my first drink at our Foster City apartment when we moved to California, but that I didn't drink on a regular basis, that there wasn't a lot of alcohol in my home. I don't remember you guys drinking a lot at all, just very, very socially, but that I like what alcohol did for me and that alcohol and later drugs became something that I relied on to emotionally regulate. I was in Catholic school, which was a very difficult period and kind of set the scene for a lot of the emotional angst. When I was getting in trouble for things that kind of weren't that serious, did you have any idea that this was that things were going to be continue to be rocky? Or did you think that this was a developmental phase?
0: Well, that's a good question. I don't know, especially you're my oldest. So everything was new. Everything was new. I mean, the only thing I had to go on was, as I said, one of them three daughters, I'm the oldest daughter, you're the oldest daughter. I knew that teenagers, I knew that as a teenage girl, it wasn't gonna be easy and it was clear that you weren't gonna be the bookish, nerdy kid. <laughs> that was clear. But I mean, no, actually you were rather bookish, but you weren't nerdy. But you know, it's a funny thing. You realize that you're going to have to dive in and get a very comprehensive education in a subject that you want to know nothing about. It's a weird thing. I've been in that situation a few times with things and you have no choice. That's in a way it's a good thing. There's no conflict there like this is your child, they're not well, something is happening, you have to jump in. And I mean in my mind there's no choice. I simply had to learn about the disease of addiction. I didn't understand it i didn't relate to it i wasn't that a judgment it wasn't like well why don't you just stop it wasn't that it was that i literally didn't feel what you were feeling so i had to take it on faith that it was something that you couldn't stop doing because you were being driven by something else and i did i did take that on faith i didn't question that it's just it's different because i personally didn't feel it i found a lot of families you know, there would be one parent or another be sort of kind of understood because they had some of the same. I didn't. But, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because it's your child. You're in. You're doing it. That's what it is. I think the thing that bothers me is that, you know, for parents, you know that you have to jump and you know that you have to be there for your child. I've noticed over the years I had a big change. I mean, when I really understood and embraced AA and I really got it. I saw that a lot of people were going through what they had to do while their kids were in recovery, and then they sort of went back to how they felt before. And They really didn't totally, I don't understand that. I feel like it's a fundamental change that you don't come back from, uh, me, I mean, you know.
1: One of the things you and I have talked about as it relates to something that we kind of reflect on is that as I was even, I hit puberty ridiculously young. And while that wasn't technically problematic, it made it me different, right? Each thing that made me different, right? I was Episcopal. I was from Boston. I was, each thing that made me different kind of changed the trajectory. And simply because we are a tribal mammal and people, you know, they're looking for like things. And I understand that now. I didn't understand that when I was in elementary school, but one of the things, so I was to set the scene, I was getting in trouble for dying my hair or not following dress code or things like that. And those things continued. I continued to really struggle to, you know, I, I got sent home for getting in a fight with father Dominic because he said that animals didn't have souls. And I was completely incensed. And I would just like to say, I would like the record to reflect that Pope St. Francis has said that animals have souls. So I was right and he was wrong, but I was outspoken. I was taught to be outspoken and that was not welcome in the environment that I was in. And so I was getting an sorts of trouble. And one of the things that happened as I got more and more trouble felt more and more separate, right. And seeking more and more validation from the opposite sex validation from the world and emotional stability, chemical stability, right. Was that other families who had been close to us, who had been close to you started to pull away. And as it, you know, as a small private school. And so everything traveled like wildfire, all information. And so families and support that you had, forget me, that you had started to pull away from you. And as it got more and more serious, that trend continued until there was real isolation and people didn't let kids come and play with my sisters, weren't allowed to come to the house. And this was before I was Really heavily using drugs. I mean, this was relatively early in my, you know, whatever dysfunctional career. And that had an effect on everyone. That had a huge effect on everyone because it wasn't just me now. And I wanted to talk a bit about that and how that felt and really reflect on what people could have done and what you needed at the time.
0: Well, I think, you know, starting from school, one thing I didn't mention about my upbringing. So I went to a private school girls school, all the way up till I went to college. So that was what was familiar to me. We were living on the East Coast. Your dad wanted to move to the West Coast. And the schools in this area, the Sacred Heart Schools, which are known, I knew well, living on the East Coast, seemed like, I mean, I knew it was a good school. So I went with what I knew. I think now, thinking about it, I mean, it was obviously not the right school for you. And I should have pulled you out. I mean, you know, you'll all parents have, will look back and say, well, I mean, I should have just done that. I was going for the education, what I thought would be the best education. Now I realize, and I have definitely realized this in a number of situations, really, it's, it's education, of course, but it's also fit and fit is critical. If you don't have fit, you know, and you didn't. And that was our mistake. We should have pulled you out before more damage was done. I think that... You know, living in the suburbs, I think that there's a lot that contributed to, man, I don't know if I want to say this, but, you know, just not necessarily being that, I don't know, worldly about the way people deal with problems. I also think it was several years ago, there wasn't some of the information out there as now, but you're right. People ran for the hills. Not everybody, not everybody. A lot of people. Interestingly enough, as we got more involved with the recovery community at when you were in treatment and we would go and we would meet people, you know, you start to have friends who are in the community. I think if I had had all these friends here, I would have missed so much, but you know, I didn't miss anything that was here because it was so fractured. And I started to morph into this other person who had friends in Arizona and had friends in Utah, not so much, And so it was a little less painful, if that makes any sense. I mean, it was so there was just not very much here for us.
1: So you're saying kind of what I hear you saying is that despite you needed support and you would have liked theoretically for the people you knew to support you, but had they been supporting you, you probably wouldn't have reached out as intensely to this recovery community, which ended up being life changing.
0: But in fairness, I really believe Not everybody, most people, they just don't know how to help. They're not trying to be mean. They're not trying to be judgmental. They're scared. They're scared. They don't know what to do. They know there's a problem. They don't want to get involved. We, as people in the recovery community, say this is a disease. This is a progressive disease. This is the same thing as if you have diabetes or leukemia. And everybody sort of parrots that, but not everybody believes that and they act accordingly. They don't know what to do. They don't want to be involved. The minute you say the word drugs, especially, alcohol is one thing, drugs, it's even worse. They don't want to be involved. And so I've been frustrated because, you know, what people say, and I think as a country, what we say and what we do are two different things. There's no parody for treatment of mental health. We talk a good game, but we don't really mean it. And it's frustrating. We all it's preaching to the choir but i think a lot of people they just don't buy it so i don't know yeah i mean you and i talked
1: about this when we were just driving we were on a road trip with uh twin four year olds for 8 hours uh 5 out of 10 don't recommend
0: <laughs> <laughs> man i should lose my phone somewhere in the desert i was so frazzled Yeah. sonoran desert yeah Anyway, still ringing out there. <laughs> yep. Still ringing. And so,
1: you know, as we were talking about this, how we pulled off on this freeway in the middle of nowhere. And there was a deserted kind of trailer park gas station area. And the long and short was, I was like, we got to go. Like, this is not a safe place to be. We're on the border. You know, this is deserted. This is going to be a place where people would go to manufacture drugs. And then it's on a major pipeline, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, let's go take, you know, wandering around two women in two kids in a minivan. And I'm, you know, like trying to get you back in the car. And so we have this conversation about where I'm saying, Hey, I'm concerned about people who use drugs being dangerous in this area and hurting us. That's what I'm saying. I didn't outright say that, but that's what I was saying. And not 10 minutes earlier, we're talking about how people who use substances are struggling and need help and need support, right? And what we were talking about after this was, here's the problem with alcoholism and drug addiction and whatever you want to call it being a disease is that you can say two things at the same time. And they're both true, which is I'm afraid of these people because they do commit crimes and hurt people and do things. And they also are people who are hurting, who may be out of control. And both of those things can be true. The part where they hurt people, steal things, et cetera, makes it a very difficult group of people to have compassion and empathy for and want to spend money on and I get that that's the difference between the diabetic and the alcoholic drug addict which is the diabetic regardless of whether or not they're making decisions they can't stop they're not stealing typically to get the food they're not hurting other people to do it and that the drug addict alcoholic tends to have to do these illegal things in order to maintain their addiction and so I think that's where we become you know a very difficult group to feel sorry for, or to, you know, I hate to say feel sorry, but have compassion for, want to support services for. One of the things that I think you have a unique knowledge of is especially many, many years out is how people can support. So, you know, before I was publicly addicted, right? I was considered just a rebellious girl. And a lot of the families pulled away simply because of my precociousness, not even, they didn't know the half of what was going on. And as a parent, most parents, are trying to get their kid to fit in, do their homework, whatever. They're not supporting you being in a fight with the priest at school, like, or whatever, like that's, you know, or whatever, whatever it was. How do parents, other parents, even though those people didn't end up being quote unquote your people, how could people have supported? You differently, even while holding that fear in the same place, you know, having the fear, but also being a compassionate person. What would that have looked like? How would you support someone who was going through what you were going through?
0: I think the thing is that it, you just have to not, it doesn't matter why a child is sick or troubled or what's going on. It's your child, your family's having a problem. Don't differentiate. Reach out even if you feel like you might not say the right thing when you know a parent has been in treatment, gone to family week or been away for, you know, I hope things were okay. I hope you're doing okay. You don't have to get into long conversations. People are different. Some people don't want to do a blow by blow of what they were have gone through. But I think just reaching out, telling someone you're thinking of them like you would with anybody who's dealing with a difficult situation. It's just that sometimes looking back. And again, I don't want to, I did have family members reach out and I did have friends reach out, but most of them were people who'd had experience in this area. I think it really shouldn't matter. You have a child who's struggling or you have a husband who's struggling, wife is struggling, just drop a text or, you know, something. I hope things are okay. Thinking about you when there's silence, it feels, you know, and we've talked about this. I've thought about this recently you end up feeling more alone. Like you have a special problem. It's not a special problem. It's one out of three families in this country have this special problem. It's not at all special. It's epidemic. So simply reach out if you need to, in your own mind, pretend that somebody has an illness that's medical bodily, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I realized looking back again, I was so engaged with what was going on. I was just, I didn't think about it. But looking back, I realized that I think a lot of people didn't reach out because they didn't know what to say. And I don't think you need to say anything. Just say, I'm thinking of you. Hope you're doing okay. The other thing is that I think the burden is on when you get a few years into recovery, the burden is also on the person in recovery to educate the family as to what they need. You know, I was thinking about it. You know, we've talked about having alcohol around or having alcohol on holidays or things, you know, and I remember saying to you when you first came back from treatment, do you mind if I have a bottle of wine on the table at Thanksgiving? I don't need to. It doesn't matter. But I don't want to hear years later that it always bugged you. It's a communication like this is not okay. This is okay. Don't say this. You're educating you as a person in recovery are educating people around you to be sensitive in a way that they don't know. This is a new level of, I don't know, etiquette or something. So you also have that responsibility to educate people.
1: Yeah, I think, and it's different at different stages in recovery with different people. You might, I might be a person who is totally fine with a bottle of alcohol at the table, and someone else might really, who's in recovery, is in the same position, might really not want that. It's unique to that person, and supporting that person is as asking them what they need. And as the person in recovery, if you need something and you're not asking for it, expecting everybody else to read your mind is super unfair. And not how you have relationships, right? I think the expert, you know, in your marriage, in your whatever the relationship happens to be, expecting each other to be mind readers is unfair. Bottom line, it's unfair. And, you know, I think, updating your recovery can look different. You know, sometimes, you know, there have been, there was a time I was many years sober and we were at a party and I was not in a good head space. And I was like, I need to leave. I need to leave right now. And we left. And that was abnormal, right? That was number one. I, I was at the party. So I figured I'd be fine. And you guys, you know, it was many years into recovery. And that was just one of those situations where I was reading the situation for me. I was my head space was not good. And I communicated like, Hey, this isn't a good situation for me. I need to remove myself. And we've had, lots of like learning things about that. But it's hard, you know, what I see, I'm, you know, where I am very lucky because my family was, I think part of it was that I was so young. And so my family, you guys were forced to come to lots of family weeks, not just one and yay, multiple treatment and learn. But I think, I honestly think that's, I I'm so grateful for that because you guys sat in a room more than once with four other families and we had a therapist there and you guys had gone through days of education and talking about things and then you got to sit with four other families and see that the parents were all nice good people who wanted their children to be nice good people and the kids were doing the same heinous things your kid was doing and that you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't cause this. You can't cure it. You can't fix it. And here's this group of people who understand you.
0: Yeah, I know. You're absolutely right. I really think that's the key because you have to travel along the road of recovery with your person, you know, with your child, there's a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of anger and you just have to let that go, but you're not going to let that go sitting at home while they're doing all this work and they're in a completely different place. And you have to really helps to sync up. I think when you go to treatment as a family, You're re-syncing your family group. You're re-syncing where you are in your life and recovery because obviously someone's left the home. There's a lot of stuff that's happened. People are upset and angry. And this is the way to work through it in a group. I mean, that was obviously a very new experience for me (laughs) at group therapy, but I mean, now I can laugh at it, but I also met some lifelong friends and some of your friends, one of whom I consider another daughter practically. And I don't know. I mean, look, this is life, you know, you just do what you do. How do
1: you work through, you know, I did some pretty horrible things. And I'm sure many of them made you mad at me. How do you support someone you're super, super angry at? Like you're super pissed at your kid.
0: Luckily that goes into the bucket of what I was talking to you before about how a lot of them I don't remember because sometimes you'll bring stuff up and I'll think you remembered them then though. Yeah. No, when you're really angry, I think you basically go to, I am your mother. It's sort of like, you know, you're pregnant and you eat well because you know you're supporting this life and that's your responsibility and you love this child. You're not really thinking that you're doing what you should do. You have that tether, I mean, that tether. I remember once thinking, you know, oh my God, you know, I'm glad this child is my daughter because otherwise I'd want to kill her. But I think that's, you know, you have that little filament of this is my child, this is what you do. And it's so strong, so strong. I mean, it has, you know cats going into burning buildings, picking up their kittens. So that's what it is. I remember, you know, a lawyer who was in our midst at one point with all this stuff, dad was talking about an argument that you and I had had, and I don't even know what it was about. But he said, you know, Peter, my advice is never get between a mother and a cub. It won't end well.
1: Yeah. I think that's, you go to the feelings, the deep feelings that you have about the person and you, I think that's hard because I've talked about this before, but when I'm using, when I was in the thick of it, right. I was not the same person, you know, I was not the same person. I I didn't speak the same way. And I would often think to myself like this, you know, I know this sounds dramatic, but it feels like possession, like a possession, right? Like an exorcism is needed because This person that I have to be in order to maintain this lifestyle, she has to be different. She has to have different morals. She has to have different beliefs and do things that normally under sober circumstances would feel wrong. And she says things that are different, right? And so finding the love for this person you don't recognize, I think can be really difficult for people.
0: I think that's true. And also, I think as a parent, at times where I've had to make decisions and I didn't know the outcome, what I always think is I have to be at peace with the decision. I have to feel that I made the right decision regardless of the outcome. You don't know the outcome. You have to really search your soul and make sure you're okay with the decision. It's difficult. You know, one thing that's hard is that, and I was saying about the doing everything for that child. You know it's very hard when you have multiple children because one person is robbing the other people of a happy home at certain times, and that does that is very difficult because you know everybody's entitled to have a peaceful childhood. I do think the way I rationalize it, my mind is that I do think that, and I see it in your sisters that there's certain talents that they have and benefits that they've gotten out of being exposed to. Some of these problems and the education they've gotten, I really do. I feel like there's certain insights they have about their behavior, about other people's behavior, helping other people. I see a difference in people who haven't been exposed to some of the benefits of recovery support. I really do. I really do. I mean, I don't know what cost they have those because it's more that it just it dominated. I think if I had to go with what was the most negative, it dominated our lifestyle for a long time and dominated, you know, I mean, there are many years that we couldn't leave. We couldn't leave the house. We couldn't go on normal weekends or do these things. But I just, you know, I have to think about some of the benefits of some of the good things. And I do, I see some good fallout in the way of, of their empathy and their understanding. I mean, it's, it's tremendous. I mean, they did get a lot out of being involved and do recovery community. They really do get it. And that makes me happy that, you know, they got that out of it. Well, and some of that
1: is, I would say a large portion of that is a result of coming to the family weeks and they were young. You know, I think parents, something that I tell parents when I'm doing interventions is, is look, these kids are living in the war zone. They know, you know, so why not bring them into the solution? They're exposed every day to all of this stuff that's going on and it does sink in why are you protecting them from having open honest conversations when they're they're subjected to the the dysfunction of it and you know the girls my sisters who were very young when this started particularly Tori, They came to Family Weeks. They saw where I was. They knew what was going on. And, you know, because I think when you talk about exposure, right, you know, it can be like, oh, my sister's missing. You know, my sister's in the hospital. She's, you know, that's exposure, right? But what you're talking about, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the exposure to the process of recovering, of treatment. That was the value for them. And not all parents would have included them. And you guys did. And now you see the benefit.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you can't expose them to the, I, the way I looked at it is, look, this is a family situation. Unless you heal as a family, you get certain people who just hold those resentments. I mean, we had to kind of come together on this. Otherwise... I mean, cause your sisters were angry at you too and they needed somewhere to work that out and they needed to understand what you were going through. And so it was gonna be a lot better if we all dealt with it together and dealt with it with professionals who had seen the dynamics of a family and how families work and could help us. I mean, why I wasn't gonna, you know, not expose them to any help that we had cause we finally, you know, had some help. So I think it was a good thing. You know, I think they look at, addiction differently there's no question and that's good i mean i just i can't imagine shielding someone from the recovery and the you know the therapeutic side of this i can't imagine why you would do that i don't think a family would stay together if you did that
1: sometimes people are afraid that the children are too young to understand the concepts or hear the details of what's going on you know they may have been exposed to the person being missing but they didn't know that the person was out there doing meth, right? Like the details of whatever it was. And so there's fear of that and fear of making it worse or upsetting them more, putting more visuals into their heads or what have you. And and again, it's really about, you know, sometimes filling in the blanks for people, everybody fills in blanks on their own. So sometimes filling in the blanks for people and with alongside the tools for recovery is the most valuable thing to do, even when it feels like they're too young, because the reality is they're being exposed. And, you know, that's something that, you know, we talk about in AA, there's a, there's something that says, you know, we don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. And I've struggled with that sentiment because, you know, and I've talked to the, my sisters about it, but I mean, one of my Biggest sadnesses or regrets is how much I took from them. And, you know, that, and they'll tell you, no, we, you know, we went to treatment, we got, we got all this education and all of that is true. But I dominated the household with violence and fear and uncertainty and I wasn't trying to hurt them but I took a lot of attention and resources and time and focus off of them and again I just wish that weren't the case you know whatever that looks like I wish that hadn't been the case I wish they have had more peace in their home but it's definitely made them amazing resilient women who have a lot of coping skills as a result right it could have done the opposite but they they have coping skills.
0: Yeah. And if if you go with the, you know, and believe the disease model of alcoholism, you know, I grew up as a severe asthmatic. I missed a lot of school. I was home a lot. I was sickly a lot. And I remember talking to my sisters about, especially my middle sister, you know, about how, you know, there's a lot of things we didn't do or couldn't do because I was always sick. That's not the same, but you know, way less fun though. That's asthmatic versus alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's, I mean, I know what you're saying and I'm sure for anybody who's had an illness that's held back a family and that's why it's important to have the family do therapeutic work together because otherwise there's no way they can find an avenue to, to get rid of those resentments. I mean, that's why that has to happen in my opinion your sister, you're all so close and you probably wouldn't have thought that would ever happen. I mean, at a certain point, I I
1: was amazed Marina spoke to me again. She didn't speak to me for two years and I deserved it, you know, and she needed that. And I mean, it's a testament to the result, you know, it's a testament to families repairing, right? I mean, you and I didn't, you know, I don't know that we didn't speak. I think you, that was going to be a difficulty, but we all had major, I think the only person I didn't have a falling out with was Tori, but she was too young, but you know, we all had, we were able to over time. And I think repair those relationships with consistency and consistently showing up, owning, you know, you guys needed to see, there were many years where I'm sure a lot of phone calls where Ashley ran away from treatment. She got drunk. She blah, 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 she, whatever she did, you know, insert whatever dumb thing I did. And, you know, for many years. So me being sober at certain points, I'm assuming, and please correct me, it was a mild comfort, but it probably
0: didn't feel permanent. No, I think until, because it's up and down, up and down, which is almost worse because its I shouldn't say that it's not worse for you, but it's because you just, you know, you don't want to sort of count your chickens before they're hatched. But I think that at the point where you got on track with school, to me, I knew how important education was to you and how important getting that together. And at the point where you were in community college and working toward getting into UCLA and and you know you really had something to lose in your mind in fact you really had something that was important to you you had a goal and staying sober was going to get you there and i felt like once that happened you you were settled you had a tattoo you had a life you know you started to rebuild a life that i could see that i mean of course things can happen but you really didn't want to lose you had a nice life you had good friends, you were getting positive reinforcement from staying sober. It was working. It was showing you that this lifestyle, this plan works. And then I started to feel better. And that's what really, I think that's what really Changed for me, and then I could, you know, t- have a sigh of relief. Of course, then you'd go to an AA meeting and somebody who'd been sober for 20 years relapsed. Yeah. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> or 30 or 40. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that stuff is, yes, that is, that's definitely real. Yeah, I think there were multiple times where I stayed sober because that's what everybody else wanted me to do. And it wasn't until I desperately wanted to stay sober and that I was like, this isn't working. And there are two instances that come to mind and I won't force you to fully relive them. But the first one, and you've and I've talked about this and I've heard this from people who've lost children. So May 17th, 2004, I overdosed you and dad and my grandmother found me and Narcan saved my life. And after that incident, one of the things that you and I've talked about is this How like all the other things fade away. Like when you that close to losing a child that, you know, you said once, I'll, you know, change the names and identify, but you said once you were somewhere and someone was like, Oh, I, you know, I'm so upset, my kid, you know, gotta be. And it's so horrible, they'll never get into college or get a good job or whatever it was. And you were like, that's not a problem. That's not bad. That's not, you know, you just have no idea. And and I think that was a very pivotal moment in all of our lives. For me, it was a pivotal moment because I didn't intend to use heroin. I was loaded when I made that decision. I have no recollection. And this is what I tell people is that I was trying to prove that I was able to drink without doing drugs. And I drank so much and ended up taking pills I have no recollection of making the decision to get loaded. It almost killed me. And that's why we don't use other substances, right? That's why we don't experiment because I don't even remember doing that. And, you know, I think that that was such a pivotal moment in all of our lives. I think for grandma, it brought home like what was really going on. Not sure that she wanted that, but it did. And I think for you and dad, as I've talked to dad about it, it's like, it really brought things into singular focus about what
0: was important. Yeah, I think, of course. I mean, something like that is just so shocking. And I think that's a case where you're, I mean, the emotions going through your mind. I can't believe, you know, I mean, I can't imagine losing a child. Uh, we have a very close family friend who's been through that. It, it is just the worst thing that can happen. It's the worst. I mean, it's just so. Incredibly hard that they would do that to themselves, even though what you're saying is you didn't know. I mean, the anger and that's when you realize someone told me once I think it was a, a psychologist said, "You know, you guys are good parents. You have a toolbox that gives you all the tools to be, you know deal with average problems, even things that sort of push the envelope a little bit. This is a situation that is beyond your skill set you need other people. We are out of our league. And that's what we realized that we just didn't know how to make this situation better. Obviously, we tried a lot before we got to the point where you left. You know, one of the things that I resented so much, which is sort of a funny thing, was that you forced me into a position by having you leave the house the way you did, which was not voluntary. You made me do something that was so unmaternal how can you do that? How can you make me make that decision that goes against everything that every natural instinct that I have to protect you? And, you know, things like that, strange things like that, that come up, you know? Right. Like, how could you make me do this? Yeah. How can I? And yeah, so there are a lot of strange, very strange emotions like that, that go through your head. But I think, you know, the bottom line is, but you got clarity. I think you've talked about this before where
1: you were like, suddenly things that used to like, suddenly you let go of all these things that used to feel important. And it was almost hard to integrate, reintegrate in the normal world because You had experienced something so, and I've heard this with parents who've lost their child where it's like people are complaining or talking about normal life problems. And you just, you've had such a a monumental internal scenario that you almost struggle to go back to normal.
0: Right. Well, and don't forget, you're dealing with different kids, multiple kids who are having different. So one is having these serious health problems. The other is applying to college. You know, you're trying to be a normal parent for the others and trying to, you know, oh, did you take your SATs or do that? And then you're like, oh my God, you ran away from, you know, I remember once I was driving somewhere, you know, in the station wagon and they called me from, gatehouse somewhere and you had run away. And I was just driving the, your sisters around. we like gone out and gotten ice cream or something. And I'm sitting there in the car and thinking, okay. And I didn't want to panic them or be you know, upset, but it's like, all right, well, I'll be home in a few minutes. And it was just very difficult to try to have a normal existence, which goes back to our point before, which is kids know that life isn't normal. They have to be included in the healing as far as I'm concerned. You know, part of the problem is that we're not living in a big city here, even though we're in the San Francisco Bay area, this is deep in suburbia and with all of its little suburban things. And so, you know, that makes it more of a disconnect with the stuff we're talking about, but
1: except lots of, I knew lots of kids in the community. And we, if you had access to money, you had access to harder drugs and lots of us got sent away. And so yes, and in some ways it was riddled, but it wasn't talked about. And uh, no,
0: and that's the thing, people, it's certainly here, but it's not, people are not willing to be honest. I was kind of forced into it. I mean, I had no, I remember once you said, (laughs) he said, Mom, you're just embarrassed about my behavior. And I said, oh, no, we're into deep humiliation at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Embarrassment's out the window. But, you know, you get to a point where, you know, and who knows what other people are dealing with. But most people, until they're forced to, want to keep all their dirty laundry under wraps, which I understand. But again, I just think you need to try to be supportive to people you know are, are struggling and suffering calling them, checking in on them. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like, well, they're not gonna wanna talk about it or they're not, and that's absolutely true. Not because, not always because you you don't wanna reveal things, but just because you're so exhausted by the process. But you just need to know that people actually are there because years later you find out, you know, they knew exactly what was going on, they knew everything was happening, but they just never contacted you. I think that's weird.
1: Do you think that it would have been useful for people to have had someone reach, like, you know, have you ever reached out to someone who's going through something similar and shared your, just say, Hey, I've been through this. If you ever want to talk about it or something like that. I
0: have, I'm trying to think I did actually, and I'm trying to remember who it is, but I'll tell you, I felt it when I remember asking you, I think, you know, when people had AA birthdays, which, you know, I have an issue with them being called that. Well, let me clarify so I don't sound terrible. It's always bugged me as a mother when people celebrate their AA birthdays. I feel like I'm the mother. Your birthday is mine. You cannot take the birthday. That is mine. Many people call it anniversary, but you know. Okay. So anniversary. But I remember thinking, I didn't know the protocol for sort of Congratulations! If I didn't know someone well, and again, this is exactly what I'm saying. If I didn't know someone well, and you hear that they have 20 years or 21 years, I mean, is it an invasion of their privacy to reach out and say? And I was told, no, they're proud of it. You're proud of it. You reach out. These are things I think, honestly, with most people, it's a question of education.
1: Well, I think people feel like they're like, Hey, sorry about your anal warts. You know, like, (laughs) like, like, you know, they feel like that's the equivalent as opposed to, again, we go back to the disease model, reaching out and, you know, learning about this stuff as, as like, what is really going on. And, considering our, the epidemic of, you know, when I was a teenager and I started shooting heroin, that wasn't as common as it is today. You know, the middle-class young teenage girls shooting heroin now is not uncommon, which is pretty wild. But at the time it was, we didn't know a lot of people who were doing that. And so I think people are so shocked what do you say? And that's the reaching out part, reaching out to family members, reaching out and
0: saying like, love you, thinking of you. Right. And also reaching out when things are bad, because, you know, a lot of people, people would reach out when things turn the corner. I'm so glad to hear. In other words, they've been following all all along and they just reached out. I mean, I hate to sound like that because it sounds like a pity party, but I'm really looking at it, you know, as a way to help other parents. And again, it can be a one way, you know, just reaching out for support. You know, the truth is that in my experience and my background, my family, you know, I didn't know people, I mean, alcohol, yes. Marijuana, yes. You know, heroin, no. I mean, that just wasn't happening to my knowledge. So that was definitely a stretch, but, you know, I think you've got to be, I mean, obviously things have changed. Yeah.
1: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment.
2: Hi, it's Ashley Joe, producer of The Courage to Change, and I wanted to chime in and let you know about our new mobile app, Lion Rock Life. It is now available for download on your phone or tablet from the App Store or the Google Play Store. So here's the download on the app. The app is designed to streamline your online recovery experience, allowing you to view live meetings in progress, join meetings quickly, and build stronger connections in recovery. So whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're in recovery for something other than drugs or alcohol, the Lion Rock Life mobile app has a space for you. On the app, you'll find alternative recovery meetings, and traditional meeting offerings. We have everything from recovery fellowship to community workshops, LGBTQIA+, women's meetings, men's meetings, 12-step meetings, and more. With over 75 meetings on our weekly schedule, you'll find a meeting that meets your individual needs. And with the app, you can personalize your recovery experience, Join with privacy in mind and recover with the support of an incredible community. Join us and find inspiration for a lifetime of recovery by downloading the Lion Rock Life mobile app today. If you have questions or need help, simply visit lionrock.life/mobile-app. Thanks. How Now that you
1: are, you know, have, you know, your kids are grown and now that I'm going to be sweet 16 in January and, you know, I have kids and I'm married to someone who's in recovery and we know that this is a very genetic thing. How does it, as the grandparent, what are you experiencing now as someone who has so much experience and so much perspective um, on the whole thing. What does it feel like today?
0: Well, you know, I always think here's the balance. Obviously, genetics are real. We can't deny genetics. You know, there's alcoholism upstream in my family. You're a product of two parents. Neither of them is an alcoholic. I think that when I think about the boys, I obviously have concerns because I know that there's a genetic component I also think that you do not want to look at every action or behavior and, you know, put them under the microscope. Oh, that's alcoholic behavior. That's this, that's that. I mean, I, I wouldn't want that if I was a child any more than you want someone to be completely oblivious to concerns they may have. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard to strike the balance between not being hyper vigilant to every action. I do have a relative who I can't name who parent is an alcoholic who said that it was incredibly annoying that she would always be worried about them, you know, her kids and would always be worried and be, you know, if they were out late, she'd want them to go to a meeting or do, and it backfired, it backfired because it was just, it was like, this is your problem, not my problem. And you're putting it on me. So I think it's hard. I think, you know, you take all of the information you have, it's incredible. You're so much more prepared for all of these things than I was, but you have to also be careful that you don't impose Because it can be, it's a lot of baggage. It's good baggage if you use it to just educate yourself. It's bad baggage if it becomes a burden for them as something, of course, I'm like this, you're like this. Because they will rebel. They will rebel. They will try to show you, well, I can drink normally and you're not going to tell me I can't, you know? And I I just don't want you to get in a face-off with them because I can imagine, especially with one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm regularly in face-offs at the losing end of it too. I mean, I um I obviously, you know, when I look at worries about my children and grandchildren, it's sort of overall with everything. It's not that one thing. It's just, you know, safety and, you know, everything. It's not I don't the normal things. Yeah. I prefer to look at it as the way we have more awareness of what could come down the pike, but we're not gonna pave the road before we travel on it. No way. I think that's a mistake. You're a very private
1: person and you married a not so private person and birthed a not so private person. And, you know, I have, you know, in some cases begrudgingly, but I have stepped out into the public to say, to try to reduce stigma around this topic at the risk of judgment from other people. And in some ways that exposes you and makes you uncomfortable or you not, not uncomfortable, but you, you're information last private. What is the experience for you of your husband and your daughter going in and starting this business and being public about this topic? How have you worked through any of that discomfort, which I know you've
0: had? I think I've come to understand for me, I mean, talking about my experience and helping other parents is definitely cathartic and feels good. What, I have never found cathartic is sort of the blow by blow of like in in AA meetings when people talk about their, like a specific experience that led them to drink or something, you know, like the dark, awful, gruesome experience, you know, that's tough. And it's tough for me when you relive some of those, because I don't want to relive some of those. I don't feel like that's helpful, but I always think to myself, you know, if that's helpful, then you got to do it because... It's all about staying, you know, staying the course. In terms of line rock, I have very mixed feelings. I'm really, really glad that it's helped a lot of people. I remember saying, Dad, you know, you have taken the most painful experience of my life and made it into an everyday ongoing conversation. I'm not trying to say, oh, let's just forget about that. That's the past, that's over, we're moving on. I don't mean that. I just mean that there's something between being involved in your child's recovery, going to meetings, which I'm always happy to do, as you know, except for the eye-opener 7 a.m., and making it a full-time business conversation. I mean, I remember laughing with my parents saying, you know, we can't get through a, a meal or a, you know, whatever, We're, you know, we got to talk about drug addiction somewhere in here. You know, it's, it's just, it's like a broken record. Yeah. Would it have been my first choice? No, it wouldn't because I feel that my, interest, obviously, is helping you and through you and the community, helping the community. And I want to do that. I would not have made it a lifelong, you know, made it in a business like this. But, you know, I have to say when I hear stories of people who've been helped, who've been saved, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but honestly, I think there have been some people. I mean, how can I not feel as a parent? How can I not be grateful that Lion Rock was able to help? So... I'm really conflicted, but I'm very happy that some people have found strength and help through the process, but man, oh man.
1: So if someone, you know, one thing that's particularly difficult with is when people have a teenager as opposed to an adult, well, I mean, there's different difficulties. There's a lot of programs for adults, but it's more complicated when you have a teenager who's doing this stuff. If you were to give advice to someone who has a teenager who's clearly going, you know, circling the drain with drugs and alcohol, what are some of the things that you would tell them they should do in order, you know, to not only educate themselves but also to try to help their teenager, what are some of your your go-to suggestions?
0: I think you've got to back up and look to long before drugs and alcohol get into the picture. That's the acting out, that's the relieving the frustration in the way that you know how and and what's available. I think you go back. In my experience, I should have gone back to looking at move to California, the frustration, the unhappiness, not feeling like you're fitting in, things that were gonna cause you to want to self-medicate. Those are the things you've got to look at. Drugs and alcohol, it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's too late, but you're already, then you're working on, you're dealing with the illustration of the problem. Look at, I would say, middle school, look at younger kids and how they're dealing with, how they're dealing with conflicts, how they're dealing with problems. Are they becoming withdrawn? Do they not want to stay connected to their friends? All the things that you worry about, changes that you worry about long before drugs are an issue. Once you get into that, you're in a different situation. I think, you know, people, there's this, as a parent, you don't want to worry about everything becoming a thing, a problem but you don't want to also wait for everything to play out till it's a mega problem. So that's the tough thing. That's a tough thing. Is this a phase? Is this an issue? Is this a problem? But I think look to changes in behavior, look to friends, look to frustrations, look to involvement in activities, you know, all of the things that look to, and I would say, honestly, 10, 11, eight, nine, 10, 11, before you get into substances, because all that is, is self-medicating.
1: If someone's already in the tornado, right, the drugs in the tornado, you know, you talked about being angry at me for making you do something, you know, for having people remove me and put me in fun places. And would you do that again? Would you tell a parent to have their child removed because they have the opportunity when they're under 18 or given what you've
0: been through? I think because at that point, because, you know, I was criticized for waiting on that too. If it's life or death, you do anything you can. So yes, I would say to do that if it's life or death. I have, you know, the treatment business is a business. There are a lot of people who are educational consultants who have relationships with places. I don't like that a lot of these places, you know, keep parents away. I know they think parents is part of the problem and they enable and all this stuff. And I think in some cases that's true. Maybe in our case that's true, but I was not comfortable with, you know, not having some contact with you at places. I just think that uh, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing when you get to the point where, you know, kids have to be removed, then it's a different situation. I know there's, you know, and they go into a different category, but I think that, Unfortunately, and here's one other thing. It's very hard to do research on this when you know it's coming. You don't want to know, like you don't want to research it. I had a very hard time looking into places, calling people. It's like, you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to do it. I don't know what to suggest in that sense. Maybe have a friend help you with that. But Think you do need to be very careful about the people you trust. There are a lot of people in this business who I found were not that impressive, and some people were amazing. And you just need to make sure that your child is in their hands. I mean, they're away; they're very important.
1: Yeah, I mean, for clarity, you know, when I went away, and I don't know if you, I don't know if you've actually seen this, but when I went away to a lockdown program in Utah, at that time, in those days, in that program how they treated kids and families came out as incredibly abusive. However, Paris Hilton was at, there was, we were a level four and Paris Hilton and Kat Von D were at at Provo Canyon, which was very near us. And that was the next level. And so we had, you know, a slightly less experience, but at the time that was in vogue. That was how they treated And did things and how they kept parents out, monitored all the calls, read all the letters, said, don't listen to your kids, don't listen. You know, and I mean, they told you whatever Ashley tells you, it's a lie. She's going to try to get out, blah, blah, blah. And so, and then they monitored all our calls and all the things. So it was a very intense situation. And that situation, that type of thing has been exposed and does not go on the same way anymore, which is really good. And unfortunately, that was part of our story and part of what went on. But I was in really bad shape when I arrived there. And you know, which scenario was better where I was or where I was, you know, it's unfortunately it was like all bad, but yeah, people, you know, and you can weigh in on this for me. I highly suggest people finding someone that they trust to help them navigate the industry, because there's a lot to know. There are a lot of like tips and tricks and things of what programs are good, how to know what, if a program is good, how to know, you know, how to use an educational consultant, who you know, despite our experience, they do have, a lot of knowledge and how to get them into the program, get insurance to cover it, all the things, right? And I think with a teen, I would suggest an I'm curious what you think. I would suggest attending an AA meeting or a young people's AA meeting. You know, if you're curious about what's going on and, and listening an open meeting, I don't know if that was, it seemed like with you and the rest of our family, when you guys would come to meetings with me on a regular basis, I mean, regular, like, you know, a couple of times a year, that that was really, that brought you a lot of insight and was very helpful to peer into the
0: mindset of what was going on. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, to me, it was the best part of, in many cases, it was the best part of treatment. But when you think about all that treatment is and all that's involved, you know, A was something that you were going to be part of, leave it, you know, so I'm talking about the structure of the treatment centers. I think you need somebody who, you know, it, again, it's the business side of this industry that is tricky because when you have a child and you're dealing with this, you're desperate. And you're upset and you can't think straight. So, I do think you actually need an independent person who's not affiliated with a treatment center, because lo and behold, everyone they recommend is going to that treatment center. And, you know, as you well know, these treatment centers, I mean, it, you know, there were parents in our group who had second, third mortgages on homes to pay for these treatment centers. So it's a big decision. If it's the right one and it's working, that's great. But my God, to basically pay what they charge and have it be abusive is unconscionable. And, you know, for as many impressive people I met, you know, at at a few of these places, there were some people who should not have been there who were strange and who were not qualified. But again, I think the treatment centers, you know, also had staffing problems. So, you know, I mean, I guess that's everywhere, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I would say to get somebody to be a case manager for the whole thing, if that, if that person exists.
1: Yeah for every stage of what you're going to go through because
0: you're going to have different providers. Different providers. And I think you're too upset to think straight. A lot of times you're just, you're too tired as in worn from the experience. I mean, think about it. You're at the point where a child is leaving the home. So it's bad. Yeah. Although some parents sent their kids away for smoking weed once, but yes. Right, right.
1: You know, there were those kids where we were like, I'm so sorry.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a situation where you may have trouble reconnecting with that child again after that.
1: Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, like, man, you know, I'm pissed at my parents, but like, I definitely deserve to be here, but I'm
0: not sure what you're, you know, I'll tell you one thing, they probably never smoke weed while they live at home again. Right, right. Thinking how low is that bar? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Having that and
1: I think engaging in, you know, for parents, Go check out an AA meeting or some sort of recovery meeting and listen to what people are saying. Things will, you know, there will be clarity there. I do think having someone you trust, having some sort of educational consultant or case manager, someone who can guide you through the process. And I will say that the programs, the adolescent programs have gotten way better than they were when I was going and much more transparent. And, you know, unfortunately, that piece of my story is a part of my story. But, you know, one thing that I will say about that is there were two ways to look at that, right? My parents sent me somewhere that was abusive for nine months and I hate them and I'm never speaking to them again. And the other is that for nine months, I wasn't able to kill myself doing whatever I was doing. And it was pretty clear that the nine months from that point were that was definitely not out of the question. So sometimes you have to remove people so that they don't harm themselves. And I've talked to parents who have a 17 year old and about to turn 18 and I'm like,
0: this is your chance. You can't force them to do this before. And sometimes that's just planting the seed. Right. I also think in terms I think it's a good idea, the A I mean, is a good idea. A is not does not reach out to people who are not in the recovery community. They don't. I mean, I don't think anybody, I know so many people are family members who I've said, have you ever been to an AA meeting? They're like, oh no. I mean, why would I, you know, I think people, I think it would be really helpful if they did that because they're, I mean, look, see all your neighbors. I mean, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous that people have these meetings that are, you know, here in this community and most people have no idea and they're crowded and they're frequent. And it's an anonymous it's an anonymous program. No. And I, I mean, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. I mean that you can, they cover that and talk about that when you go in, but I guess what I'm saying is that they do welcome people who want to go into recovery. They should welcome the curious about being in recovery because there are a lot of people who may be, I mean, I don't know. Yes, I understand that it's anonymous, but, um, Open meetings are really good for that, but they're never, I don't want to say advertised. And I know, I know AA doesn't, you know, but something, something, some sort of communication to welcome people who are curious about the AA community. Is there anything else that you think that you,
1: and I'm sure you'll remember 10 things when we're done, but that you think is important for people, parents to know you know, in any stage of this, whether they're going through it now, they've been through it, like is there any insight that you really think is important for people to know?
0: No, I think, you know, what we've talked about just to be aware of early signs of frustration and anger. And I think that's particularly difficult when you're already looking for, you know, a change when a child becomes an adolescent, you're expecting some of that. But I think in the case of, with you looking back, it was different. It was more intense. It was more unhappy. It was more profound. I would say, don't be afraid to dive in and deal with it. You're either going to deal with it now, or you're going to deal with it later. So it's hard when you, you have a full plate, you have a number of children, you have other things going on. You see someone behaving in a way that you think, oh, it's just hormones. It's just adolescence, but go with your gut. If you know, or you think it's something more, try to, Pursue it, try to look into it because, again, you're going to be dealing with it later. You are. And the worst thing you can do, I guess, is that you overreact a little. It's what I was talking about before, not borrowing trouble at every turn. But I think as a parent, when you have a situation that's just above and beyond what you would expect for, you know, even a normal teenage girl, which is, you know, horrendous. you know, there's something and to get ahead of it, you've got to get ahead of it at the point where you're buying drug tests. You know, I remember a friend of mine was buying drug tests at the drugstore. I'm like, you know what? At the point where you buy a drug test, you know, the answer to that drug test. don't waste $25. You know, the answer. Oh man. I remember you
1: guys trying to drug test me and man, I managed to get pee from Tori and I was able to do a clean test And dad knew I had been using, but I was able to get this clean test. And we had an all out like brawl because the test came back clean. I'll never forget. We were in your room. The test came back clean. And he's like, I know you've been using. I was like, you just drug tested me. And, you know, just this like
0: gaslighting, you know, whatever I was like. You know, you get so worn down. I don't know if you remember, there was a trunk on the back of our well, of course you remember trunk on the back our back porch. At one point I couldn't, I said, I'm not keeping track of alcohol in this house. I don't know what's going on. I don't even care at this point. I'm going to put the bottles of uh, spirits in a trunk, like a footlocker trunk on the porch and I'm putting a padlock on it. That's it. I don't even care. So put it in there. And I don't know if it's a combination or key lock. Anyway, put it in there. Years later, I think you were in a few years in recovery. I was like, it's time to get this trunk back up and stock the bar. And I opened it and it's full of empty bottles. It had been relocked. I mean, and that just says, you know, you can't, there aren't enough hours in the day to be so vigilant if, if for kids that really want to, Oh my God. And I mean, seriously, it's, and then I thought, you know, you, you know, why not just throw the bottles away? I mean, now I have to recycle all these empty bottles. I mean, there were probably 20, 25 empty bottles of spirits. I mean, this is perfect. This is just classic.
1: I mean, dad once said when, you know, he said, uh, and I thought this was perfect. He said, kids have all day to figure out how to beat you, how to get around, you know, they literally, they don't have anything else to worry about other than how to get what they want. And so they will outsmart you. I mean, that is true. We spent, I mean, we took intelligence and, you know, thoughtful ways to get around things and to get what we wanted. And we had all the time in the world to think about that. So, whereas like now, you know, I'm like, can
0: we call someone to help me with this? I can't, I don't have time to think think about how to fix this problem. Right. And that's absolutely true. And I think one of the things that hits on is when you make the shift to when you're angry and you as a parent don't have control. And I I think it's very hard, especially for some parents and, you know, it's hard for me, but it wasn't as hard as it is for some parents. you know, when you realize like someone else is controlling the narrative in your house, for some parents, that's intolerable. Like I'm not calling the shots. This kid is calling all the shots in this house. And I think that really blows up a lot of families, but you realize, you know, I'm not in control, but then I think if you really understand the disease model correctly, you realize, well, they're not in control either. Not that they're trying to make your life so miserable, not that they're trying to ruin everything, but that they are not in control either. And that helps, that helps obviously with where to put the anger and the frustration and everything as a parent.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely look back and like I dominated, I dominated everything in the house and that I can imagine that, you know, whatever that feels like, it feels like a loss of control. feels like I felt like I was in control of the narrative. I felt like my anger and rage, and then, you know, coupled with the substance abuse could control people's behavior because it was so outrageous. And I was so willing to accept whatever consequences came with it. That was the other thing is I just stopped caring about the consequences and was uninterested in the consequences. And I think that's when you have a real problem, because it's funny when I was in treatment, people were like, why don't your parents just beat you? Literally, literally they were, Cause I always said, you know, my parents never hit me and I would have hit me, but you know, my parents never hit me. And they're like, if you, if I, if you had done that to me when you were my dad would beat my ass or whatever they would say. And I, I would say, yeah, my, my dad, He hit a hole in the wall once, but never touched me. And I think something that's really interesting about that is like, that was your value. That was your belief. Like we're not going to hit, you know, in our house, that was your, you know, whatever that for whatever it's worth. And so these are the situations where are you going to allow? And I think it's very impressive that you guys didn't, are you, because of my behavior, my behavior was violent. My, you know, I was hitting people. Are you going to allow this person to make you into someone that you're not to make you into a parent that you're not. Right. And that didn't, you know, that you guys were able to not do that. Some people would say that, you know, maybe threat of violence would have changed my behavior or scared me, but I don't think that's the case, but you do. You, I think you risk when you have something like this in the house, you risk becoming someone you don't like, or you don't want to be because it feels so out of control.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that as a parent, having a child who has any problem, I mean, you know, it's the genetics, it's the environment, it's a lot of things. But if you start with genetics, where is that from? That's from your parents. You know, there is some fault, you know, or some responsibility that you have as the parent. Oh, it's all your fault. Okay, good. (laughs) Some little piece. Yeah, that's that's all I heard. (laughs) I mean, your kids are byproducts of you. So the idea of wanting to take them down, I mean, you know, you're upset and you're angry, but you've got to work it out. They're part of you. And they also didn't ask to be here. Yes. I remember regularly telling you that. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, but yes, it does require a lot of control. I remember thinking at a point where there was once where I, um, I was trying to decide whether I know you'll laugh. I was trying to decide whether I felt like having a drink, you know, which was always my, I don't know if I'm tired. I don't know if I want anyway, my drink of choice, as you know, is vodka on the rocks. And I was thinking about having a drink and I was thinking, you know, if I was an alcoholic, I would definitely be one now. Like now's when I go for it even though obviously I was, you know, going to meetings and visit, you know, fight, but you know, the lack of control, frustration, stress, but yeah. Was there anyone
1: that you were sharing? Like when, you know, I mean, I was a missing person. I went to the psych ward, you know, like these insane, when I ran away with Jeremiah's mom, do you remember that? I ran away with Jeremiah's mom and I ran away with my ex-boyfriend's mom and uh, he was my ex at the time. This was his mother. And we went to the health club that we all belonged to, to charge food because we needed food. And so that's how you guys tracked us down because we were coming out of the cafe, the health club cafe with like crates of like food that we had ordered and charged. And they, I literally, you don't remember
0: this? I remember you going and I remember her, but I don't remember the club, but no, in terms of the detail. Yeah. My parents were incredibly supportive. I mean, I think they tried and I, I would talk to them. They were both very, you know, very loving and my sisters, but you would tell the details to them. Yeah. I mean, I would tell them what was going on. I mean, they knew basically what was going on. They knew the situation was out of control. They knew that, you know, they knew what was happening. Um, my mother and my sister came to treatment when you were there. They did. Well, I remember my mom visiting in Arizona. Maybe that's when you were in the hospital. Yeah. And my sister came to gatehouse. My sister, Diana, I think came to gatehouse or to Vista. I can't remember, but they came, you know, my immediate family was very supportive and I talked to them about what was going on, you know, but so the comments that I said earlier, those aren't really about immediate family, but I don't know if I necessarily felt compelled to give them every gory detail, nor did they probably want it. They still, you know, sometimes I'll hear about something that was going on in my family on the East coast in that period of time. And I'll say, Oh, I didn't know anything about that. And they said, Oh, well, we didn't want to you know, you were dealing with other things. (laughs) We didn't want to bother you. You had a missing child. We didn't want to bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. No, I mean, they felt helpless too. You know, they wanted to help your grandparents, your grandmother, dad's parents were also amazing. I mean, there was one time where something happened. I think you were going to treatment and I think Marina was in camp and Tori was home and we just put Tori on a plane to the East coast to spend the summer with her grandparents. And she went from her, my dad and my mom, and then to your other grandmother. And yeah, she had a great time. She was just cruising around for the whole summer. (laughs) Yeah. So they were all very involved and very helpful, supportive.
1: Yeah, I definitely got really lucky in that region, considering they also both got a close up of the situation.
0: Yeah, it's hard because they're upset that, you know, their child, me, you know, is under so much stress and they're, you know, and dad, but you know, you also have a connection to your grandchildren and you also feel for them. And I think if you've had any experience in your family, as we have with your dad's sister, you know, that education doesn't go away. And this is when you have to pull it back and use it and really mean it. Yeah.
1: What do people say to you
0: now these days? They say, I can't believe Ashley has kids and she's living in the suburbs and driving a minivan. (laughs) (laughs) Tell them I can't believe it either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. That's literally what they say. Yeah. That's a really legitimate question.
1: I felt like a piece of me died when I bought that minivan. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yep. Yep. So, you know, the more years we get away from the more distance we put between, it's more, you know, but it's still amazing. I mean, you're an incredible example for the recovery community. I mean, it's one thing to put a life back together and people do, but I've also, I've seen examples of people hobbling along and, you know, look, you take what you can get, right? some people make a full recovery. It looks different for different people. And for some people, it's just staying alive and working day to day. But you know, I mean, you've obviously done much more than that. And that's my God. I mean, that is an example to people, really, really an example of people, what they can do with their lives and how worth it it is to stay in recovery. I mean, that's what it's about. Nothing you can say that is going to be as strong as provide as much incentive and as much of a role model as just being up there and showing people how you live.
1: Yeah thank you and you guys i'm so lucky that i have such an amazing family that was willing to not only speak to me again but come and sit and you know come to family groups i know families that didn't do it and you know have their shit splashed around so that we could all heal and and then come to meetings with me and support me over the years and you know it's just i'm i rely very heavily on my family on my sisters on you guys you know, as support. And I know that not everybody has that. And I'm really lucky to have that. And I'm so grateful that you guys have stuck with me. I was a real asshole and uh, I'm hoping that karma is kind to me,
0: but I don't expect it to be. Well, remember when I broke my, uh, or I had surgery, I think on my ankle and you came up and you, you know, helped me and you came and picked me up at the surgery center. And I said, Oh, thank you so much for picking me up. And you said, Oh, I feel like I probably have about 10,000 more of these papers to do or something <laughs> it's like that. It's so, so true. Funny.
1: it's so true. It is. It is. I mean, that was one thing that they taught us in treatment was, you know, when I made my amends to you guys, like they were pretty blanket amends because what am I going to go through every instance? You know, those it we'd be there for a year and, you know, but what, some of the things that I said were, you know, a commitment to my family, not to lay a hand on anyone because that was, I was you know, at a range problem when I was using... And to you know that my recovery is a living amends that I'm a living amends. I show up when I say I'm going to show up. I'm reliable. I tell the truth. All the things that we say, like we learned all in AA, we learn all the things that we learned in kindergarten, right? We don't take things that aren't ours. We use nice, kind words. We tell the truth. You know things like that. That I. That's the living amends, and that's been a rewarding experience for me rebuilding the relationships in our family and learning how to do that and how to show up and to, you know, it was particularly difficult. You guys were like, you know, we just want to get away from this. We, you know, whatever, we forgive you, move on, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's fine. It's fine. And Tori and Marina held my feet or mostly Marina, but held my feet to the fire. And we're like, no, we want to see that there's change. We want to see that you're a different person. And that was a very positive, you know, character building experience for me because I had to show up and have them doubt me and have them and just continue to do it until they saw that it was the changes were permanent. And that was hard I because, you know, all the best you remember, this is like, you know, I'm three months sober. I'm totally different person. Right. Like, and you're like, yeah, three months ago, you stole my car and crashed it. And, you know, now you're three months sober and you're like, oh yeah, I'm a different person.
0: Right. Well, for everyone else, you're still a dick. And you're afraid as the family member, you're afraid to, you know, be so excited and then have it fall through. But, you know, as I say, that you know, you get away from that, you know, the longer you get away, but then, you know,
1: yeah, you know, it's hard to, as the sober person, you're like 30 days. Like, do you understand what I went through to get 30 days in a row? And as the, as the family member, you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like 30 days, 30 days ago, I wanted to murder you. And, you know, 30 days, is. but you have to like manage all these different,
0: you know, realities. Well, that's why I think it's very important for family members to go to meetings because I have sat in meetings with people who have 24 hours. I've sat in meetings with people who have a week, a month, a year, you know, all the way up. And so if you don't see it and hear from them, you really can't understand You just can't, you know, you're speaking a different language and you're referencing feelings and you're using terms that, you know, you just really, in order to really be part of it, you have to go, it's not that hard. And some of them are incredible. I mean, I've been to bad ones too, but I've been to incredible meetings where I've thought, oh my gosh, you know, I feel sorry for people that they don't have exposure to this. It's something that you're also very lucky. It's a community of people are so supportive and so loving. And you come out of those meetings feeling incredible. And I told you, I think that when I first sat through them, it was hard. It's hard to sit still for that long. It was hard to sit and listen to the same thing. They go through all the same, all the rules. Yeah. I know the rules. can't do that. You know, all the stuff. And I would sit there and I, I'm not saying I was doing the crossword, but you know, it was close. And I thought, you know, I think someone said something in a meeting once and I thought, yeah, I, I relate to that. And I thought, you know, I can't apply it to alcohol and I can't apply it to drugs. But this is about human beings. This is about all of us. This is about our behavior. And I'm going to use what it is that I can use for me. And then it was a different story. And then I just listened with, you know, an openness that I didn't have before. Because before I was like, okay, I'm going to go for you. I'm just going to go for you. And it's helpful. It's nice. And then watch the clock. But once I turned the corner, I realized, my Lord, then I started to feel sorry that the other people didn't have that experience because it's amazing. It's, it's just amazing. I mean, it's amazing the amount the emotions and the love that you get from people in that room. I mean, it just makes you feel good all day, all week. Yeah.
1: And seeing grown men cry and talk about their feelings in a way that you would never see anywhere else on the planet. And it's so beautiful. It's so, it's so, you know, you just, you feel understood. And the truth is right. I don't go to, to 12 step meetings anymore for alcohol. Cause I haven't had alcohol in a very long time. I go to remind me how to live my life. And the, and yes, alcohol, like at this point, alcohol is, that's still part of it. But I, I continue to go because I have to remember that there's something different in my brain and it's always there. It's always talking to me, but it, it has volume and I can turn that, that volume is always trying to turn up and meetings turn it down, turn it down. But on its own, it sort of trends loud. And, and I'm trying to keep the work that I do in recovery keeps turning that volume down. And then I can be a person who drives a minivan in suburbia. Lucky me. But yeah, it's applicable to anyone because we're talking about, you know, human behavior in life. And and I always say, we don't have unique problems. We have unique reactions to problems. Our problems are the same, you know, I mean, the struggles and the thing, you know, people go through trauma, people have difficult, child, you know, whatever it is, they're the same. It's just our reactions are fatal. We have stress and we're like, we're going to drink ourselves to death, right? Whereas someone else might eat too much candy or binge watch a show or whatever they do. It's
0: the same problem, but the reaction is different. Well, that's why it's important to, when you go to the meetings, you see everybody there. You see people who may not have a lot else going on, but you also see people who have a lot going on, who are very successful, who have many other places they could be and yet they find time to fit in this meeting and that sends a message that sends a message about the importance of this activity this event and i think that's you know that is telling that's telling especially seeing people in those meetings i didn't realize people still went to meetings when they were 20 years sober 30 40 so there's an education to be had and i think it's um, i think it's really important Because, you know, obviously treatment is treatment for a short period of time. But as you say, we all go through things in life and, you know, they're not easy and things aren't easy. And so um, that's amazing. Can't say enough about AA.
1: Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and, and letting us, you know, I know that this topic is not your fave. No, it's not. (laughs) no, it's not. Well, I know, I should say, I know this topic is difficult and for you in the sense that it's not something that you, you know, regularly talk about publicly.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, as you can see from what we've talked about, there are parts of it that I prefer talk, you know, I don't, as I say, I don't have a problem talking about it. I don't want to relive the bad times, but there have been, when I think back, and as we've talked about in this period, there have been so many incredible things that have happened. And that's what I go to. I don't want, I mean, why would anybody want to relive horrible moments in their lives? I don't know, but, um, you know, if I have to, I, no, but I, I, uh, but you know, when I think back to some things that I've been through in the process, they're amazing. They're great. They are. So the truth is that, we can talk about it. And there's some, there's amazing people and amazing things and it's okay. I mean, it's good. It's got it. It got us to where we are today, which is a great place.
1: Yeah. Super
0: awesome. Yeah. It's
1: amazing. And I can't say enough about the value and the amazing things that recovery have brought to my life. And that without my recovery, I'm genuinely incapable of being the person that I am. And, you know, some days I wish that weren't the case, but it's the, you know, the lot that I got and I have a shit ton of fun in recovery and great relationships and all the things. And, that was not the case, you know, 16 years ago, that was not the case. So, you know, if people are listening and they feel like you can't see your way out of this, you have a kid who you can't imagine that this is going to end well, there are lots of stories where it ends well. And I'm happy to talk to anybody and help anybody who's going through that and and share my experience.
0: And I am as well. And especially parents, any parents want to contact me, I'm happy to talk to them and help.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks mom for being here. I love you.
0: Thanks, Woody. Love you.
1: This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.